brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This is Booked on Rock. I'm Eric Senich. Our guest this episode, Andrew Wild, author of Eric Clapton's Solo, Every Album, Every Song. Of all of the classic British rockers who came to prominence in the 1960s, only a very few have achieved significant, sustained success through to the present day. A list that comprises Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones should also include Eric Clapton. His critical and commercial accomplishments with John Mayall's Blues Breakers, Cream, Blind Faith, and his first solo album between 1965 and 1970 was followed by the inexplicable failure of the Layla album. Clapton withdrew into addiction for several years. In 1974, his comeback album, 461 Ocean Boulevard, returned him to the top three in both the UK and America. Always a strong concert draw, Clapton has released another 16 top 20 albums since. Even Layla returned to the charts in 1982. Eric Clapton's solo, Every Album, Every Song, reviews and analyzes all of Clapton's studio albums since 1974 as well as successful collaborations with B.B. King and J.J. Cale. It's been a long, varied journey. The laid-back rocker of the 1970s, the commercial sheen of the 1980s, the polished, acoustic, yuppie music and hard blues of the 1990s, the slick R&B stylings of the 2000s, and the roots homages of the 2010s. All of this was underpinned by the skill and talent of Britain's greatest blues guitarist and a hugely underrated vocalist. Andrew Wilde is an experienced writer, music collector, and film buff with many books to his name, including recent publications about Queen, Pink Floyd, and Dire Straits. His comprehensive study of every song recorded and performed by the Beatles between 1957 and 1970 was published by Sonic Bond in 2019. To hear a playlist of the music discussed in this episode, head over to the show notes page. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast, your second time here. Thank you, Eric. It's an absolute pleasure to be talking to you today. Your book begins at a time of rebirth for Eric, both professionally and personally. After reaching the pinnacle of both commercial and artistic success with Cream, he has a brief but now legendary run with Blind Faith, then Derek and the Dominoes. His debut solo album out around that time as well, but it 
just as it seems as he's off to a great start to the 70s, things fall apart for him. Can you set the stage for where Eric is at the time he enters the studio to record his comeback album, 461 Ocean Boulevard? Yeah, sure, absolutely I can. So the book covers the period from 1974 to date. Uh, and you mentioned uh, the other two I'm working on, they will fill in the gaps around uh, the early material as well. But by 74, Clapton had been off the road and out of the studio for three years. Now, back in the early 70s, you know, that was a career-breaking gap to be three years off the road and out of the studio. And those previous 10 years, I heard you say, had been absolutely non-stop with, with Cream, Blind Faith. He had a top five album with John Mayles Bluesbreakers in the UK before that as well, and success with the Yardbirds. And then the Layla album came along. You know, and you and I probably would agree that the later album is Eric Clapton's finest work. But it was a massive flop, a massive flop. You know, it didn't um, do any of the business that he expected, probably because he chose to use a pseudonym that no one knew who the heck Derek and the Dominoes actually were. You know, his record company put out, you know, button badges that said Eric is Derek. But I think by then uh, that particular train had, had gone. Um, so he had a degree of um, a depression, I think, from you know his greatest band being unable to follow up his greatest work, I think. Uh, and then he also picked up a heroin addiction, which is debilitating, uh, I guess, for anybody. So that took him off the road and, uh, and out of the studio for three years, basically from the beginning of 71 to the beginning of 74. You know, but, but by the beginning of 1974, he was, he was ready to return to the studio. There's quite a famous story and that he went to work on a, an uncle or a cousin's farm in Wales and basically did um, manual labor and worked out the demons out of his out of his body and out of his mind which is amazing and then gradually started to pick up the guitar again and the link here is a bass player from Derek of the Dominoes a guy whose name was Carl Radel who kept in touch with Clapton over the years sent him a demo tape of the musicians that he was currently working with um, in Tulsa so there was a band kind of ready-made who were keen and ready to go into the studio. And uh, Robert Stigwood, who was Clapton's manager at the time, heard of this and decided, you know, all Clapton needs, all Eric needs now is a little push in the right direction. So Stigwood booked some studio time, booked some flights to Miami, booked Tom Dowd to produce and Tom Dowd to produce uh, Cream's albums. Uh, and from there, the sessions for 461 Ocean Boulevard took place um so yeah first time in the studio for three years uh and you know a pretty decent and a pretty successful comeback album yeah released in july of 74 includes the number one single the cover of bob marley's i shot the sheriff i think that was his only number one single if i'm not in the, U in the, in the u.s in the it u.s only number one yeah Motherless Children, Let It Grow, Mainline Florida, also on this album. This is, as you write, an accessible collection of bluesy songs with a country and or reggae feel. He's not really focused on complete songs. His guitar work accompanies the songs rather than standing front and center. In fact, on his cover of I Shot the Sheriff, there isn't even a guitar solo. No, that's, that's true. Although originally, it did have a guitar solo. And if you listen to the compilation album Life in 12 Bars which came out a few years ago, the full-length version of I Shot the Sheriff Complete with a guitar solo is on there. But, you know, originally, the, the album version and the hit single version, that faded early. But there was always a long solo when he played this song in, in concert. I remember seeing him in, I think, um, 1986, and he played I Shot the Sheriff for about 10 or 12 minutes and just had a really long 
beautiful melodic bluesy solo. But you're absolutely right. His studio albums, certainly in the 70s, they focused on song craft, very much on, on the craft of creating uh, a song and also on pretty much on Clapton's singing rather than his guitar playing. But if you wanted to see those, you know, guitar pyrotechnics, you only had to go and see him in concert where he was still, you know, a great, great blues player. Do we know why he decided to delete the solo from the recording that ends up on the album? Uh, my guess is uh, it was probably due to time constraints and that, you know, if you want to put out a single, you don't put out a seven minute song. So they chopped, they chopped it down, made it more concise, compact. That's my guess. Eric Clapton removing a solo from a song. Boy, isn't that amazing? That speaks of the times, too. I'm sure it has something to do with getting a single out there, but also his mindset was the complete song more so than being front and center on on guitar. Exactly. The the craft of the song, the craft of the performance, and not the focus on uh, long solos, which he did with Cream, which he did with Derek and the Dominoes. And I think in the 70s, it wasn't quite so in important to him in terms of his solo recordings, but he would still play you know, long solos in concert. Can you tell the story? This is a funny story regarding Eric later getting a call from Bob Marley after the song hit number one. Yeah, he, he relates in his memoirs that, um, that Marley knew about it uh, and they had a telephone conversation uh, and they had a, uh, I believe Clapton says something like, you know, that he, he tried to ask him, Clapton tried to ask Marley that what, what I Shot the Sheriff is actually about. You know, is it a true song or is it a metaphor? And um, I, I believe that Eric just simply couldn't really understand what Marley was trying to tell him. Uh, you know, I guess he had his Jamaican patois and, and all that stuff. But, you know, Bob Marley was a massive influence, especially in the UK at this time in the 70s. He was hugely, hugely popular in Britain where he had a long, long string of hit singles. And in a way, I Shot the Sheriff was all part of that. And Similar to how Clapton kicked off J.J. Cale's career, we may talk about that a bit later on. In a way, I Shot the Sheriff also helped boost Bob Marley's career as well. Certainly from I Shot the Sheriff, which is 74, through to Marley's death in, in 1980. Huge, huge popular singer and performer uh, in Britain in particular, uh, which we, you know, which is we need to thank Eric a little bit, I guess, for, for helping us show the way for a great, one of the great reggae artists of our time. As he did with guys like Robert Johnson, too, yeah. Eric follows up the number one album, 461 Ocean Boulevard, with There's One in Every Crowd in 1975. A similar sound to 461, but didn't achieve the same commercial and critical results. It was number 21 in the U.S., 14 in the U.K. You write it's a quick, off-the-mark, but messy follow-up? Yeah, you know, I think it was probably just a case of banging out another album. It was recorded in Jamaica. It was recorded the month after 461 Ocean Boulevard was released. And as I shot the sheriff was, was heading towards number one in the States, um, you know, so uh, it's no surprise really that his management company got him across to Jamaica to record a follow-up, you know, PDQ. Um, you know, uh, it, it's a fairly low-key album. I think it's Eric's uh, four original songs that work best on that album, but they're tucked right at the back. You know, the, the last four songs on the album are, are, the, are the four originals. So you really got to sit through fair, some fairly less than inspiring songs to get to those four at the end, um, you know. But there we are. It's, it's part of the canon. Uh, it's great there for, for collectors, but I don't see uh, too many non-believers spinning that one too often. No hit singles from this album, but you say Better Make It Through the Day is the highlight? Yeah, I think so. Uh, people often forget that Eric Clapton loved soul music and he played, he has played over the years, great deal of very good soul music 
you you listen to some of his more recent albums over the last 10 years and i would call him a soul singer a brilliant soul singer so i better make it through the day which is an original song from there's one in every crowd is a very late night feel very smoky feel um laid back and definitely definitely soulful i mean he was developing as a singer in the 70s i don't think anyone would say he was a great great singer then but certainly by the time we got to the uh, 90s and the 2000s i would say his singing was on a par with his guitar playing and not many people would really think to listen that way but uh, better make it through today was a kind of a signpost towards that i think August of 1976, we get No Reason to Cry, which features contributions from members of the band. Robbie Robertson, Rick Danko, Garth Hudson, Richard Manuel, Levon Helm, along with Bob Dylan and Billy Preston. Quite a roster, yet this is like a sports team where on paper you would think they would win the title, but that doesn't happen. Even Eric admitted that it was a drunken, disorderly kind of album, and that had to do with where it was recorded, which was in Malibu at Shangri-La Studios. It was, as the title suggested, a little too comfortable. I don't know. I think on its own merits that No Reason to Cry is a really good album. Um, you know, it's it's quite loose, but it's extremely professional the way it was recorded. I think, as you say, the sessions were, how shall I put it, well lubricated. I think that's true. Uh, you know, there are, there are outtakes you can listen to that very much confirm this. And, you know, they were having clearly a lot of, a lot of fun in a rock star way. But, you know, hugely talented musicians. The band, to me never did a Duff song on all of the albums they ever did. And th- they worked together with Clapton really well. In fact, as I was trying to think yesterday, when the first time I really clocked who Clapton was, and I think it was watching the film The Last Waltz, probably in about 1981 or 82. And of course, Clapton plays on, on that film and on the album. And that kind of led me back to people like Neil Young and Van Morrison and, and Bob Dylan just from that one film. I think... No Reason to Cry is a mid-career highlight, actually. I think it's probably the first of a run of three very good albums. And Obviously, I listened to his whole, Clapton's whole back catalogue as research for this book and particularly enjoyed uh, No Reason to Cry. I'd forgotten how entertaining it was. Worth another spin. And your recommended pick would be Double Trouble? I think so. There's some real fire in that track. You know, It's an old blues number by Otis Rush, another one of Clapton's big influences. And on that one, he really cuts loose and plays particularly well. There's also some piano on there. It's uncredited on the album, but I think it's probably Billy Preston uh, who is uh, who was part of those sessions, and, and Preston matches him stroke for stroke and note for note. Of course, Preston played in Clapton's band in the, the end of the 2000s as well and was uh, added plenty of um, fire and showmanship to those shows, uh, which can sometimes be a little, uh, little dull. I'm wondering if there's the Stevie Ray Vaughan connection there. Is that why Stevie Ray named his band Double Trouble? I would not be surprised, Eric. I had never thought of that. Yeah, but, um, we should know this. You know, I always <laughs> thought they were called Double Trouble because originally there were two of them, you know, a bass player and a drummer yeah. uh, as part of a trio before they brought the keyboards in. But uh, it would not surprise me that Stevie Ray Vaughan, who I saw in concert, one of the greatest gigs I ever saw, I wouldn't be surprised if he named his band after an old Otis Rush song. It would fit, wouldn't it? Sure. Whatever slump Eric was in would about to come to an end. In November of 1977, he releases Slow Hand, the first Clapton album I ever heard from front to back. My older brother had it. A classic. This was the first of his own projects to be completely recorded in the UK since 1969's Blind Faith album, and the results speak for themselves. A number two album in the U.S., 23 in the UK, Saturday Night Fever, by the way, kept it off the top spot. Can you believe it? Yeah. 
<laughs> Three timeless classics come from this one. Cocaine, Lay Down Sally, and Wonderful Tonight. It was recorded at the Legendary Olympic Studios in London. It was also produced by legendary producer Glenn Johns. His partnership with Eric began with a song that Glenn was working on for Pete Townsend and Faces bassist Ronnie Lane. Is that the story? Yeah, it is. So Pete Townsend from The Who, Ronnie Lane from The Faces recorded a, an album together. It's a wonderful, wonderful album called Rough Mix. Uh, I urge all of your listeners, go out and stream Rough Mix by Townsend and Lane. It's one of the greatest albums of the 70s, in my view. So it's recorded at Olympic, the very famous studios in in London. It was recorded in February 1977. And Townsend and Lane, they called in a lot of their pals to take part in this one. Now, Glyn Johns, he, he's released a book called Sound Man, Eric. If you can get Glyn on your show, you get lots of great stories. But everyone should go and read the book Sound Man by Glyn Johns. Great book. The people he hasn't worked with. Is a, is a smaller list than the people he has, I think. But anyway, John's mix Clapton's Rainbow concert album, which was recorded in early 73, about four years before these sessions for Rough Mix. And Clapton was supposed to attend an overdub session to fix a couple of things, but he didn't show up. And so he wasn't in Glyn John's good books at all. So when Townsend asked him to record Rough Mix and, and, and asked Clapton to come and play on a on a, an instrumental called Rough Mix, uh, Glyn Johns wasn't particularly keen to do it. You know, who's this, you know, snobbish guy that couldn't be bothered turning up for this tracking session? But apparently Clapton was a total delight and they got on really, really well. And they eventually recorded three albums together. Uh, Slow Hand was the first of those uh, and two others. But, you know, go and listen to Rough Mix. If you like the kind of um, more pastoral feeling of Ronnie Lane's Slim Chance, the acoustic work of The Who, and Clapton's on three or four songs on the album as well, actually. Uh, then uh, it's really, I would call it a comfort blanket of great music, uh, Rough Mix by Townsend and Lane. And that was how, that was how Clapton first worked with Glyn Johns. Try to find an album in the 60s and 70s that doesn't have either Glyn or Andy John's name on it. <laughs> yeah, the it, brothers too. Amazing. Legendary. Yeah, Andy sadly yeah. passed away. We mentioned J.J. Kale earlier, Cocaine. That's a cover of a J.J. Kale song. Before we get to the song, we got to give some time to J.J. Kale. He's such an important figure in Eric's career, and we sadly yeah. lost J.J. Kale. When and how did their friendship and working relationship begin? So what we need to remember is that when Clapton recorded After Midnight for his first solo album in 1970, that J.J. Kale had only released one single at that point. So, And After Midnight was the B-side of that single. Uh, and in 1970, he had no recording contract. He did a one-off single with After Midnight as the B-side. When Clapton came to hear it, I, I think through Delaney Bramlett, who was the uh, producer of that first solo album. And they recorded that for the Eric Clapton album. It was such a success. Clapton's version was such a success that J.J. Kale got a recording contract out of that. Recorded his first album naturally in 1971 included another version, a different version of After Midnight, a slower version on there. So we can argue quite comprehensively that Eric Clapton kick-started J.J. Kale's career. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In return, J.J. Kale undoubtedly influenced Eric Clapton for the, for the rest of his life. They were great friends. Um... Clapton recorded many, many, many of J.J. Kale's songs as the years went through. You know, so I'd say J.J. Kale and Robert Johnson, maybe Ray Charles were the three most biggest influences on Clapton's music over the years. So, so yes, J.J. Uh, Kale, was re- he died maybe five years ago, very much of his style. You know, each of his albums are very similar to each other, but they're all great and worth a, worth a listen. You really hear the influence in the post-Cream albums from Clapton because Kale was the guy who, he went with a minimalist approach, but yet the songs had substance to them, and that's yeah, what Clapton absolutely. was looking for. Yeah, in, absolutely that, so. in that post-Cream era, he wanted that sound. You can absolutely hear J.J. Kale's influence throughout. You know, they would record together for the road to Escondido. They would tour together in the 2000s. There's also a tribute album that isn't particularly well-known called The Breeze that was released in, in 2014, that Clapton did with peers, I mean, Willie Nelson and Tom Petty and Mark Knopfler, they all play on the album with Clapton playing J.J. Kale's songs. You know, they were great, great friends. Not just Clapton who covered Kale. We got Leonard Skinner's, you mentioned The Breeze, Call Only Me The, the Breeze. Breeze. Yeah. As for Cocaine, fans often say it's a pro-drug song, but Eric says it is just the opposite. Yeah, uh, that's a J.J. Kale song, yep. as we said. Uh, you could argue that the chorus... She don't lie. She don't lie. She don't lie. Cocaine is potentially ambiguous. But uh, Clapton has always insisted that it's an anti-drug song. And very often in concert, he would change it to that dirty cocaine in the in the chorus just to underline it. So, uh, yeah, it's, I'm sure it's not a pro-drug song. And Wonderful Tonight, a great story behind this song. Can you tell this one? Yeah, absolutely. We can pinpoint the writing of the song to a specific day, which is quite unusual. 7th of September 1976. So Eric at that time was living with uh, Patty, uh, formerly Patty Harrison, soon to be Patty Clapton. Uh, and actually, Patty writes about this in her own memoirs, where um, they were due to go out to the annual Buddy Holly party that was organized by Paul and Linda McCartney, who were friends of the couple. Quite simply, she couldn't decide what to wear. And he wrote the song while he waited for her to get ready, and she came down and he played it to her. Throughout this time, Eric has been working with a steady lineup. This is the mm. classic lineup that I, they call the Tulsa era, right? The South Florida yeah, session. Yeah, the Tulsa band, yeah. Yeah, 
the South Florida session musician George Terry on guitars, Dick Sims on keyboards, Carl Radel on bass, and Jamie Oldeker on drums. All three of those guys from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Talk about this lineup if you can and its place in Eric's career. Yeah, we should also not forget Marcy Levy, also from Tulsa. Yep. So she was the backing singer and occasional lead singer as well. And Yvonne Elliman also was in the early version of that band as well. Um, we need to remember, really, that Clapton had chosen to leave all pretty much all of the bands he'd worked with up to that point. So he left the Yardbirds. He left the Blues Breakers. He chose to leave Cream. Blind Faith kind of fizzled out after that U.S. tour. So in every case, it was up to him to finish those. Now, the one band he wanted to keep going was Derek and the Dominoes, but they kind of fell apart when they argued to, in, in the studio. So when he formed that Tulsa band, he was given a degree of stability, a stability he'd not really had in a group of musicians before. Now, his private life at this time was utterly chaotic. And it was for, you know, 25 or 30 years. So I expect that some degree of professional stability was was very important. And, and those guys were very, very flexible in their uh, musicality. And they could play the blues, they could play the reggae, they could play the country music, they could play everything. So I think to get his solo career back on track from 74 to kind of early 79 when that band was uh, was together was very important. Those musicians contributed significantly to that. And he had one last album with this lineup, 1978's Backless. You write that it's entirely the equal of Slowhand, yet it had fewer hits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hits don't necessarily mean quality, do they? You know? But listening to Backless again recently reminded me, uh, you know, just how good it, good it was. It's all about the material. So we've got two songs co-written by Bob Dylan, uh, another J.J. Cale cover, an original song called uh, Golden Ring that is 100% J.J. Cale influenced. You know, there's a burning slow blues on there. Uh, you know, it's got a quality and depth for album. Uh, well worth another listen. I remember, there's a funny story. I bought this on vinyl in, uh, in the early 80s. And I, I remember taking it home and playing it and I accidentally left the record player on 45 instead of 33 and I put it on and I'm thinking sounds strange that's that must be the girl singer that's singing that one uh, but I was playing it <laughs> instead of <laughs> that's great instead of at 33 of course uh, there we are <laughs> the uh, old days of vinyl yeah and the vagaries of youth yeah um, you know but uh, I think it's a good album and I think it's full of great songs this is around the time you became a fan. You wrote it in your introduction, late 70s, early 80s. You said you first yep. found out about Eric Clapton, and then you saw him live for the first time around this time? I saw him live for the first time in 1984 Okay, at Wembley Stadium as a guest on um, Bob Dylan's tour. He did a European tour in 84. He, Clapton came on for the encore. Uh, I also saw him as the lead guitarist in Roger Waters' band in June 1984, and then saw him many, many times uh, since then. Yeah, so we're about that time. That's interesting. Yeah, your first two times seeing him wasn't him as the headlining right. act. He was part of. That's right. A, That's right. I've seen. Phil, it's strange the way it comes. I've seen Phil Collins four times, but never as a solo artist. It's, yeah, you know, playing with other people, but you know, that's just the way it is. Yeah, and we're leading into the Phil Collins era of Clapton, where Phil was just about everywhere in those days. Eric kicks off the next decade with 1981's Another Ticket. Some shake up in the lineup prior to recording the album. There were even some members fired by Telegram, according to Eric. He wasn't even the one to send the Telegram. It was his manager, Roger Forrester. 
yeah, that's right. Uh, Clapton has written subsequently that that was a cowardly act on his part. Uh, so Albert Lee joined that Tulsa band in early 1979. Uh, I'm sure all your listeners know that Albert Lee is one of the great underrated guitar players of all time. Uh, and those two guys together, Clapton and Albert Lee on the, sa- on the same stage, must have been a sight to see. Uh, but by the end of that year, all of those American guys had been sacked by Telegram, as you say, which um, was, was pretty bad. I mean, I think Eric was ready for a change. He hired a, an all-British band for in 1979 and went on to record the Just One Night live album, which is absolutely terrific. Uh, so we got Dave Marquis on bass, the absolutely wonderful Henry Spinetti on drums, and Chris Stainton, who's worked with Clapton ever since on, on keyboards. And the musical director was Gary Brooker, formerly of Procol Harum. So pretty strong line up there. Um, but they only really recorded that one album together, another ticket. Among my favorite Clapton songs on this album are I Can't Stand It and Rita May. I Can't Stand It reached number 10 in the U.S. Rita May is the one moment on the album where we get that flashback to the days when Eric really cut loose on the guitar. He even used the guitar from his Cream days on that one, you write. Yeah, I think, it, I think it was the old Gibson ES-335 on that one, if I remember. Uh, so we're here in early 80s, and, you know, Clapton really started to play more guitar in the studio around this time. Uh, and as you say, that song, Rita May, that really up-tempo, fast number, full of, uh, full of very neat, tight solos. And I don't know, he, I think he was gradually rebuilding his reputation as a guitar player in the early 80s throughout the first four or five years until in the mid 80s that reputation was fully re-established i think money and cigarettes released in february of 1983 just before mm-hmm. this album is recorded there is a period of great change for eric clapton we could have lost him there's some dark moments in eric's life that you write about in this book can you talk about this particular yeah, period for yeah, him sure uh, two the main problem is that at that time, uh, and he talks about this in, in some detail in his own memoirs, that he was an alcoholic. Uh, and he agreed to go into rehab. And also around the same time, he had some pretty serious stomach ulcers that I think ruptured. So he agreed to go to rehab. He was booked into a flight to, to, to the States to go there. And he got absolutely and utterly wasted on that flight because he thought it would be his last chance to drink. This is how serious it was for him. I'm going to read a little bit from his from his memoirs here, uh, and this is a quote. And he said, "The only reason I didn't commit suicide was that I knew I wouldn't be able to drink any more if I was dead." That's pretty serious, you know. And he, he he says that that he thought that the drink was the only thing worth living for. I mean, that's pretty serious state of affairs, you know. But to give him credit, although it took a while, it took another several years, he did get cleaned up. He kicked the booze. He, he, he eventually kicked uh, kicked the drugs. He, st- he even stopped smoking in the end in recent years. Uh, so eventually he got cleaned up. But, you know, <laughs> there's a phrase in, in UK which may not translate for you, which is clapped out. When something's really worn out and broken, it's clapped out. So we used to call him Eric Clapped Out in the early 80s because, you know, he he could have keeled over and dropped dead at any time but you know good for him that he was able to keep pushing through get clean sober up continue to make uh, good music you know and it was noticed in the music david frick of rolling stone wrote that it showed renewed strength after a debilitating illness and too many sleep records do you agree agree with his uh, assessment i would agree i would agree Uh, you know i always think that 
Clapton plays best when he's pushed. Not when he's in the front being leading, but when he's pushed. So on that album, Money and Cigarettes, Albert Lee's still playing with him. Guest guitar player, Ry Cooder, peerless, peerless player. You know, so Clapton has to step up and he's playing because he's there with Albert Lee and Ry Cooder. There's a song on there called The Shape You're In, um, which is a song Clapton wrote about his wife being drunk, which I thought was ironic, but um, there we are. But they alternate lead breaks, the three of them, through that song. Really tight, short, two-bar lead breaks. But it's amazing stuff. So, yeah, uh, where Clapton is pushed, you know, when he plays with Steve Winwood, when he plays with Phil Collins as his drummer, uh, and many other occasions, then uh, he really gets to uh, to his best, I think. The big single is the number 18 U.S. track, I've Got a Rock and Roll Heart. You quote Clapton author Mark Roberti, who said the song is, quote, lame. Well, let's say there's always a trade-off between commerciality and art. (laughs) Keep it simple, short and sweet. There you go. (laughs) Phil Collins was a ubiquitous figure by 1985. On the radio, TV, magazine covers, late-night talk shows, the man was everywhere thanks to his success with Genesis and as a solo artist. But he also did a lot of guest work, and he partnered with Eric for the album Behind the Sun from 1985. He not only performs on it, he co-produces along with Clapton, Ted Templeman, and Lenny Warrenker. He's credited as a, a co-producer. I know Lenny Warrenker is a, a record exec guy mostly, isn't he? Lenny Warrenker. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's but he, right. He's credited as one of the producers. Eric and Phil had been drinking buddies for a few years. Producer Tom Dowd suggested to Eric that he should capitalize on the popular Phil Collins sound not even realizing that Eric already knew Phil. Yeah, that's it. Phil Collins tells a hilarious story in his own book. Collins' memoirs are called, is called Not Dead Yet, uh, and I can highly recommend it. Now, in mid-1980, so five years before this, uh, Collins was asked to produce an album by John Martin, the legendary Scottish folk singer, uh, who I still miss. I saw John Martin many times in, in concert. Now, the album was called Grace and Danger, and at that time, Martin... And Clapton were friends, but Clapton and Collins didn't know each other. Uh, and what I think I'd like to do is just read a little bit from Phil Collins' book that explains how these guys came to work together. So it says this, John Martin is looking for something to brighten up his day and thinks Eric can help. So John calls and asks us if the pair of us can go over to Eric's house. Eric must have said no. John is the kind of chap who has a tendency to overstay his welcome. And here he's suggesting popping down to score with me, a total stranger. So we meet in a pub in Guildford, which is quite close to where Clapton lives. Eric doesn't know me from a bar of soap, but I do remember sitting with a pint of Guinness opposite one of my heroes. Me, quaffing pints in the pub with the guy I'd idolised at the marquee. Unfortunately, for a while thereafter, I feel that Eric assumes I'm just someone who hangs about with John Martin when he's shopping for drugs. (laughs) (laughs) But by the end of 79, Eric and I are very close. And by the time the Genesis album Duke is released in 1980, we've already started the tour. And that particular day, the middle of three nights at the Hammersmith Odeon, is when Eric Clapton finally realises that I'm more than a pool-playing drinking pal. <laughs> so Clapton went to a Genesis concert, and there's, there's this guy on stage singing and playing with Genesis, who he kind of figured out was just a drinking buddy. You know. So when Clapton's record company suggested that Phil Collins sound for Behind the Sun, Clapton was able to go straight to the source because they they were already pretty good friends by then. So he didn't know anything about Phil's music career prior to that with Genesis? He must have heard of Genesis. You'd think. That's hilarious. He's thinking, yeah, this is just some guy I drink beers with. And turns out he's pretty damn good as a musician. 
I like Behind the Sun. I enjoy that record a lot. Warner Brothers rejected it at first. They didn't hear any pop songs, and this is interesting. Instead of walking away from it, something Eric would do in the past, he said, okay, I'll give you, give you your pop songs. He records four new commercial tracks. Three yep. are included on Behind the Sun. This I'm curious. Do you know which ones are the four yep. new commercial tracks? Okay. Absolutely. So the lead single, Forever Man, was recorded in L.A. The other songs are called See What Love Can Do. And something's happening. Those are the three that are on the album. Uh, the fourth one was released on the Wayne's World soundtrack. So there's a rarity. It's called Living Your Loving. Living Your Eric Loving. Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. Now, all four of those are written by Jerry Lynn Williams, which is quite uh, an important uh, development in Clapton's career. So over the years, Clapton's recorded many, many songs by Jerry Lynn Williams, who is a professional songwriter from uh, where... Georgia or Texas or somewhere down there. Yeah. So it took about a handful of years for that song to appear on a record, the Wayne's World soundtrack. That would yeah. have been 91. Uh, yeah, so quite a few years later, five, six, seven years later. I want to listen yeah. to that one. I don't have that soundtrack, and I've never listened to that song. I want to listen to that one now, because I really enjoyed all of the songs on this album, and I know the diehard Clapton fans they don't favor it as much as the other stuff, but I like it. Yeah. You know, and if you want to collect the songs that were kicked off the album for those three, a song called Jailbait, which is a B-side, a song called um, Heaven is One Step Away, which is on, I think, the Back to the Future yes, soundtrack. Yes, I know I that one. That's playing in one of the scenes in the movie Back to the Future in the background, the, the guy on the bench. You, you got it. it. He's playing it on the radio, transistor radio. And the third one is a, the third one is a, a lovely blues track called an acoustic blues track called too bad. And again, that was a single B side. So jailbait too bad and heaven is one step away. You can slot those into the behind the sun album, take out the three LA tracks and you've got how Phil Collins and Clapton originally wanted that album to be released. It's an interesting way to set up a little playlist. Absolutely. Yeah. I got to do that. And the highlight is the track forever, man. That was number 26 in the U S 51 in the UK. And you write that it's hard hitting, catchy and powerful. And it has a special guest musician. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Steve Lukather is on that song, as you say. He's also on the song See What Love Can Do. So Lukather's on two songs from that album. You, you may not know, Lindsay Buckingham is on Something's Happening that was recorded no. in the LA sessions. Jeff Bacaro's on a couple of tracks from, from those sessions as well. And also um, Nathan Easton and Greg Fillingaines are, are on those tracks. So those three or four tracks that Clapton did in uh, Los Angeles to, to fill the commercial need put him in front of some you know big names i think forever man is a bit of a layla ripoff you know how many times the three first three words just the same but it was a minor hit single it was clapton's first professionally produced video clip so that would have got tv rotation you know and it helps really help drive the sales of that album and put him back on the map but for me the highlight is a song called just like a prisoner where the playing is outstanding there's a solo at the end of that that is truly wonderful the booked on rock podcast will return after this as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After recording over a handful of tracks for the Edge of Darkness TV series in 1985, Eric returns with August in 1986. This was originally titled One More Car, One More Rider which I didn't know until I read your book. Phil Collins is back, playing a big role on this one, as with Behind the Sun. He performs on a lot of the songs, co-produces it with Eric and Tom Dowd. It's in the way that you use it, Tearing Us Apart with Tina Turner, sharing vocals. Those are the standout singles, and it was written and recorded during another dark period for Eric. I didn't know he tried taking his life around this time. Well, yes, according to Laura Del Santo, who isn't necessarily a reliable source. So uh, Laura Del Santo was an American model, and the mother of Clapton's son, Connor. Now, Clapton's private life, as I said, was absolutely chaotic in this time. So he was still an alcoholic at this point. He was married to Patty Harrison, but their marriage was starting to unravel. And when Laura Del Santo fell pregnant, you know, we have her word and just her word that Clapton tried to kill himself in response to this extra responsibility he'd need to take. I would say he makes absolutely no mention of this in his autobiography. Mm. We can decide whether... We believe that story, but whichever way you look at it, yeah, it was um, another kind of um, dark and uh, unsettling period for Clapton at that time. And sometimes his best music comes out of that. You know, what's interesting about it's in the way that you use it. I always thought it was cool. The song just starts right in with the main chorus. Um, yeah. yeah. Now that, like, uh, like the songs we were talking about on Behind the Sun, that was another late addition to that August album. That's the only song that's, rec- that's produced by Tom Dowd. The rest of the album is produced by Phil Collins. And again, the record company, Warner Brothers, didn't hear a single. So they co- the, the song, It's In The Way That You Use It, is from the soundtrack to The Color Of Money, the Tom Cruise film. It was recorded with the assistance of Robbie Robertson of the band, who wrote the music, as I recall. But it's a, it's a great start to the album. But if you listen to that song independently to the rest, it does sound kind of different to the sound and the feel of the rest of that but um, it's not phil on drums no the drummer on that song is henry spinetti okay who we mentioned earlier yep yeah bass player the session guys uh, lawrence cottle and richard cottle uh, who are big british session guys and keyboards by uh, gary brooker okay so they are so a bit of a reunion of of his earlier musicians for, for that particular track very brightly recorded And now Eric is in his early 40s. He is an elder statesman of the British rock music scene by now. 
but still capable of maintaining his star status. The album Journeyman released in November of 1989. It's another big hit, number two in the UK, 16 in the US. He brings in, as you write, the best session musicians money and reputation can buy, and he also enlists some heavy hitters to guest on this album. Can you talk about some of the star yeah, musicians absolutely. that we hear yeah. on this one? I think most of Journeyman is a very good album. Very good indeed. I mean, there's a track there called Leave Me On, recorded with uh, Cecil and Linda Walmack, which is a beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, there's a track called Old Love, written about Patty Harrison, which is written by and performed with uh, Robert Cray. That's uh, an absolute career highlight. Uh, so, yep, uh, Chaka Khan and Daryl Hall add backing, track, backing vocals to a few tracks. Uh, and Phil Collins is brought in again to provide a single uh, a track called bad love uh, as well but what's really interesting about journeyman to me is there's a version of hard times the ray charles song hard times on there and that proved to clapton that he could return to the blues and he would spend quite a lot of the next five or six years simply doing just that so a big uh, turning point for for clapton that he didn't have to stick to the commerciality he could do the stuff he loved and still be successful and his buddy george harrison is on george harrison is on there george provided a couple of songs for that album song called run so far he's on the album and george plays slide and backing vocals on that one and they also recorded at the time a song called that kind of woman although that wasn't released at the time uh that was put out later on a on a compilation but gary moore also recorded that song as did george himself on his final album but it was first recorded by clapton Pretending Bad Love, the two standout singles. For Bad Love, as you mentioned, that was one with Phil Collins on it. And Phil said Warner Brothers wanted another Layla. And for Eric, this wasn't so hard. He had the template. It was just a matter of recreating it. And it was Mick Jones of Foreigner who came up with the middle part, which is based off of the Cream Classic badge. Yeah, and I think think the bridge of of Bad Love is is such a copy of badge that it's almost embarrassing. Those arpeggios uh, recreated almost note for note. Uh, and to me, that sound, the sound of that song sticks out quite badly from the rest of the album. It's the only one that Phil Collins produces on that album. Uh, and it's a very bright production, uh, which is odd to my ears with the more kind of warmer sounds on the other. But I have some trivia for you. Bad Love was recorded at Townhouse Studios in London on the same day with the same band as I Wish It Would Rain Down by Phil Collins from But Seriously. Oh, okay. Which Clapton plays on. on the same day. Yeah. Yeah. Same people. Yeah. So, you know, Palladino on the bass, Phil Collins drums, and Eric Clapton guitar. Pino Palladino would later go on to join the Who. He's played with everybody you could possibly yeah. imagine. He replaced. But yes, he did. He was. He, he did. He replaced. He replaced John Entwistle like yep. two or three days after Entwistle's death. The song "Bad Love" is a lot like the re-recording of. After Midnight, the 87 version, I think. Is it 87 that that was recorded? The Yeah, somewhere around that time. Um, so we mentioned earlier, J.J. Cale did a fast version and a slow version of After Midnight. And Eric Clapson has also done both the fast version and the slow version. Uh, the synthesizers are both there in that Bad Love and After Midnight. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was Alan Clark from Dire Straits who played on, on those sessions. Oh, really? Okay. okay. Yeah, I think so. Eric wouldn't release a full album of new songs until 1998. He recorded several instrumental soundtrack albums, including the third and fourth Lethal Weapon films, one of them for the 1992 movie Rush, 
Tears in Heaven, a huge hit in 1992, number two in the U.S., number five in the U.K., his best-selling single in the U.S., three Grammys, including Song of the Year, but it's bittersweet for Eric, this song inspired by the tragic passing of his son, Connor, just four when he died after falling from the 53rd floor window of an apartment in New York City. What an awful story. This is, as you write, one of several songs from this period that reflects Eric's immediate emotions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm, you can't really imagine just what that would be, but we can think of a, a number of songs that that Clapton wrote around that time. Uh, a song called uh, The Circus Has Left Town, which was recorded under the title Circus. Uh, and My Father's Eyes were both recorded actually during those unplugged sessions, but weren't released. Uh, I, I think if you listen to the outtakes, it's clear that those songs weren't quite yet finished. But both of them are on the Pilgrim album, both highlights of the Pilgrim album from 98. And there's also another called River of Tears, uh, which uh, is of a similar kind of subject, uh, which to me is one of Clapton's greatest ever songs. And that dates from that kind of period as well. His 92 MTV Unplugged album was another Grammy winner, best-selling live album of all time. He returns to his blues roots with 1994's From the Cradle before releasing the first album of all originals since 1989's Journeyman with the 1998 release Pilgrim. This is another sharp turn in musical style for Eric. My Father's Eyes was the highlight single, mostly contemporary soul pop, and the critical response was mixed. You say the songs have aged well, but maybe too many songs on there? Yeah, it was kind of the beginning of the CD era where, you know, you could put an hour and 10 of music on an album where perhaps you shouldn't have done. So there are 15 songs on Pilgrim, which to me is about five too many. You know, you can have a really tight playlist of any of the 10 songs from the album, which is just right, and enjoy that as a unified whole. But, you know, the tone and the quality of a lot of those songs is quite flat, and I don't think you can really sustain it for 70 minutes, uh, a very long album. But, you know, I'd agree, My Father's Eyes and River of Tears, uh, both tremendous uh, songs, highlights of his entire career. So at the very least, you've got those those two classics. And it did, it did have a current sound. Like there were some, I don't I want to say electronic beats, but drum loops and things like that. There was some experimentation yeah, absolutely, in there. Absolutely. There was. Clapton uh, was working at that time with Simon Climey as his collaborator. And they would work by doing little samples in the studio and then building songs up from, from there. Clapton as a musician has reinvented themselves many times, and I think this is just another in the sequence of that. But what that led to a few years later is the song Change the World, which he recorded. It was probably his biggest latter-day hit at all. Again, that was a strange one. It wasn't released on a, on a, on a regular album, only on a, a soundtrack. Uh, but it really pushed him into three or four albums in that style and that genre. I would say my personal pick from the Pilgrim album is the song One Chance. Yeah. If you like Clapton right. playing guitar, you know, heavy guitar songs, that's a cool track, One Chance. Yeah, agreed. Eric kicks off the 2000s by returning to his blues roots once again, and this time with B.B. King, the 2000 album Riding with the King. 2001's Reptile features some originals, some covers, including the cover of J.J. Kale's Traveling Light. 2004, he records an album of Robert Johnson songs called me and Mr. Johnson. This, as Eric Clapton fans know, this is the guy for Eric Clapton, a huge fan of Robert Johnson. He really connected to Robert's struggles. There was something that clicked with him when it came to Robert Johnson's music, but as he said, he found it to be too much anguish to take upon first listen. 
But each time he would go back to it, he connected with it more and more and realized that really there was no deeper he could dig into the blues after hearing the music of Robert Johnson. Yeah, there's no question that Robert Johnson has been a major influence on Eric Clapton's work. Um, I, I'm sure you've heard the original recordings from the late 1930s of uh, Robert Johnson. Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely as raw as you can imagine, recorded in hotel room and I think in San Antonio and Houston, if memory serves. Uh, please don't write in if I've got that uh-huh. wrong. Over the years, I, I tallied this up for you, Clapton has recorded 23 different Robert Johnson songs. Wow. There's only about 28 to go at. Uh, in the first place, since 1965, when he recorded Rambling on My Mind with the Blues Breakers. But you think of Crossroads, uh, Steady Rolling Man, Love in Vain. All of these are Robert Johnson songs that have been recorded by Eric Clapton. And in fact, that album, um, Me and Mr. Johnson, had a follow-up, um, which wasn't quite as well known, called Sessions for Robert J, uh, where Clapton went in and did some slightly different versions of some of Johnson's tracks. And if you watch the DVD documentary that comes with that album, um, he goes into the same hotel room in Texas that Johnson's second sessions took place. He's there with Doyle Brammel, uh, Doyle Brammel second, I should say, and they basically play the same songs in the same room on the same instruments as Robert Johnson did in 1938 or nine or whatever it was. Uh, it's quite... Um, if anything lifts, uh, you know, the, the, the goosebumps or the chicken skin, as you might say, then listen to Sessions for Robert J., which is the companion album to me and Mr. Johnson. Absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. He could write a book on Robert Johnson. He knows not just his music, but his whole history, his life history. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a fascinating story as well. Um, one of the books I read in, in preparation for this was the biography of, of Robert Johnson. Uh, I think it's called Me and the Devil, if I remember and you and I cannot possibly imagine what it would have been like being in the 30s, a black man in the southern states needing to earn a living by singing in a duke joint. And ultimately, I think he was um, poisoned by a jealous husband or something along the line. You know, and the apocryphal story of him going to the crossroads and selling his soul to the devil for his talent, you know, uh, is, uh, is one of those uh, folk tales that will stay legendary for, uh, forever, I think. In 2005, Eric released Back Home, features nine originals, three covers. One of the highlights is the single I'm Going Left. Hard to guess which of Eric's collaboration albums mean the most to him, but I would think his 06 album with J.J. Kale called The Road to Escondido be right up there. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, I think The Breeze from 2014, which is a collaboration album and tribute to J.J. Kale, actually tops The Road to Escondido. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that Clapton invited a number of his friends and peers to to sing different J.J. Kale songs with him and play some new unheard ones as well. As for collaborations, I think the live album he made with Steve Winwood in 2008 uh, is absolutely stunning from start to finish. If you want to hear Clapton playing Voodoo Child, that's on that album, if you can believe it. Um, I'd also call out four other lesser-known collaborations as well. So... All Things Must Pass by George Harrison, on which Clapton plays around about two-thirds. He's one of the great albums of all time in, in, in classic rock. There's an album called The London Howling Wolf Sessions, where Clapton plays on all of that. Uh, the, the, the rhythm section is Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman from The Stones. First of a series of very, very good albums recorded in London with different uh, old blues players. One of A similar one is called uh, Plays the Blues by Buddy Guy and Junior Wells from the early 70s. 
where Clapton really lets loose. And one you may not know, actually, a 2011 album by the band's Robbie Robertson. It's called How to Become Clairvoyant. And that's very much a collaboration between the two of them. I would highly recommend those four as well to, to anyone who wants to hear Clapton collaborating, but not being in the spotlight, if you like. I've done some research, Eric, for a future book that, uh, that looks at all of Clapton's session work. And I was surprised to, to list 200 albums that he plays on by other people over the last 60 years, right up to last year was the most recent. So uh, uh, it, it took me a long time to collect and listen to those, but it was good fun. Prolific, because that's the word to describe them. I just think he likes to play. I don't think he charges a fee for these. I think he just turns up and, and plays. That's how he communicates with, with people, I think, through his fingers and his, his guitar playing and not through him. Uh, through any other way that's his therapy his therapeutic <laughs> yeah. process yeah I mean, you think of all the difficult times he's gone through it's music if he didn't have it i don't know if he'd still be with us i'm sure you're right yeah 2010 the roots album simply titled clapton is released featuring many big name guests including cheryl crow steve winwood Derek trucks and winton marsalis old sock released in 2013 much like the 2010 album clapton an exploration of his roots Folk, blues, soul, country, reggae, some American songbook classics in there, some new material. After J.J. Kale's passing in 2013, Eric records The Breeze, an appreciation of J.J. Kale. You mentioned that one earlier. That was released in 2014. I Still Do was released in 2016. As you write, Eric comes full circle here. He returns to the warm, organic sounds of the album Slow Hand and Backless. Glenn Johns even returns to produce this one. This is a number six album in both the UK and the US. And as you write, not bad for a guy who had 23 solo albums by this time. Now in his 70s, you call yeah. it an assured and poised album. If this were to be his last album, good way to finish? Yeah, absolutely. It's a Roots album. It, it was generally recorded live um, with all the players in the same room. It's recorded at Mark Muffler's studio in, in London. It's absolutely full of, of good songs, gently played. Uh, beautifully recorded by Glyn Johns. Now, the last song on the album is called I'll Be Seeing You, uh, you know, and that might be a big hint that it is his last album. Uh, he recorded um, a documentary around this time with the British uh, comic actor Paul Whitehouse and with Glyn Johns. And Whitehouse asks him, is this your last album? And Clapton just sits there and raises his eyebrows and doesn't say anything. You know, he... he he, as we said earlier, he cleaned himself up. He married uh, his wife maybe 20 years ago. They've got three daughters. You know, he's 77 years old next year. Uh, I think, you know, if anyone deserves a, a happy retirement, it's probably him. So I, I think it might well be his last album. I mean, purists will be shouting, yeah, but he put out that Christmas album uh, a couple of years back. Yeah, but that doesn't really count, does it? And he's released a couple of standalone singles in the last uh, few months. So maybe that's what he wants to do is just when the muse strikes, he'll, he'll put a single out. But it's five years since I Still Do is released. Uh, as I said, he'll be 77 next spring. Uh, you know, we can understand his wish just to stay at home now, I guess. Oh, yeah. One of those singles, he's gotten himself into the headlines for some controversial statements. I thought it's funny because in your book, you quote him saying, I think this is back in 76, mid-70s. One of the most beneficial things I've ever learned is how to keep my mouth shut. And he fell into that trap again, and he made some comments about the vaccine. And Yeah, um, he did. Yeah. Um, Van Morrison wrote a single for him, uh, and they recorded it uh, together. 
Is that the one? The and, that's the anti-vaccine song, isn't it? Yeah, it, it can, in it, in a way, it, you can understand that it's not it's not anti-vaccine so much as anti-segregation. That he doesn't want to play a concert where everybody can't come in, whether or not they've had their vaccination. I'm not sure of, of whether that's a, a sensible approach to take. I mean, uh, everyone listening to this will have you know their own opinion on that, but. I think in this case, he probably should have heeded his words from the mid-70s and, and probably just kept his own counsel. I'm trying to remember what's the name of the, the new song. Uh, oh, This Has Gotta Stop? Yeah. What do you think it. of it? Do you like the song? It's a straightforward, generic kind of blues. It is pretty enough, um, but I think the underlying message doesn't sit easy with, with me. But um, he, he's reached the stage in his career where he can probably do as he pleases. So Eric Clapton's solo, every album, every song. It is out now in the UK. Here in the States, it's out on October 29th through Sonic Bond Publishing. Any websites you want to direct people to get a copy, Andrew? You're probably best if you're, if you're in the States to go to uh, Amazon.com. Uh, uh, it'll be in stock there soon, I believe. If you're in the UK, uh, please go to BurningShed.com, uh, also available at Amazon.co.uk. Uh, they don't give me quite a good royalty as Burning Shed, so okay. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll plug that one in there. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great. I think it's my 14th book. Um, I, I enjoy doing it. I've been a Clapton fan uh, for 40 years, you know, and um, he's done some really great music over the over the years and some fairly ropey stuff too. But you know, for someone who's recorded and credited on close to 40 albums, uh, I think the, the general level of musicianship and professionalism. It's been remarkably high. You know, we just listen to the music and forget about any of the uh, personal stuff that we may or may not agree with. And I did mention at the top, there are a couple more Clapton books. So hopefully that was okay to mention. I mean, if so. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So now that means we've left the listeners in suspense. What are the two other books that you're going to be working on for Eric Clapton? So the next one is finished. Uh, It's called Eric Clapton Sessions. It's due out probably in the middle of 2022. Uh, and that is a full resume and analysis of every song he's played on for other people, of which is 200 separate albums worth of material to go through. And that uh, that was a fun project. So that's mid-2022. And then we need a follow-up for the uh, solo book. Uh, it'll be called Eric Clapton, The Band Years. I think that's uh, what we're going to go with. I'll cover 1963 to 1973. Uh, that's not due to, for publication until 2023. So uh, we'll start working. I'll start working on that one probably next summer. And that covers all the, the period where he was a member of a band. Correct. Yeah. So the Yardbirds, John Mayall's Blues Breakers, The Cream, Blind Faith, and Derek and the Dominoes. And it will finish with the Rainbow Concert. And lastly, any social media pages that you want to get out there for people to Yeah, you can find me on you can find me on Facebook, Andrew Wild Author. Come and check me out there. And if you want to listen to my own podcasts, it's uh, andrewwild.progzilla.com. Oh cool, I got to check out the podcast. All right. Yeah, I do a I do a quarterly show on progressive rock music uh, on progzilla.com, which is UK's biggest uh, prog radio station. And I love how we're friends on Facebook, and I posted the video of Genesis performing Mama from the current tour. This is when they returned from the COVID, shutting everything down. And you defended Phil Collins. That was cool. A lot of people, they love to hate on Phil. I don't understand it, and I'll tell you why. Um, I went to see Genesis in concert this week. Oh, cool. You went to see, okay, in Liverpool. How was it? I will use the word magnificent. 
So, yeah, the guy is old and frail. A lot of the depth and strength of his voice has started to fade. Here's a couple, they've got a couple of backing singers in there who just fill in and give some depth to his singing now. But Rutherford and Banks are not charismatic men, right? So when you come on stage to see Genesis, you've got a couple of university lecturers there and Phil Collins, whose charisma is 100% in place. Because he, he's had trouble with physicality. He had a, 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 an operation that went wrong. Um, and he can't walk particularly well. So he walks on with a stick and he sits on a chair. I didn't know what to expect going to see Genesis. I'm a, I'm a big fan of their mid-period, um, kind of uh, late 70s, early 80s, is my kind of period for Genesis. And it was magnificent up until they decided to play Invisible Such, which is not my favorite track, to be honest. I don't really like that. But up, up until that point, it was utterly magnificent. Phil Collins filled a 10,000-seater arena by the sheer strength of his charisma. And he yes. sang brilliantly. He sang really, really well. I've seen the clips. Actually, they have a full concert on YouTube, and I saw it. And it, it, seeing it on YouTube doesn't do it justice. you got to be sitting there. But it's true. I just... It just, I get, I just got a warm feeling seeing Phil out there again. Either you, those who don't like Phil, they're just never going to like him. But if you, if you like Phil, you love Phil. He's just, uh, and his sense of humor is great. He's got the yep. great English sense of humor. And hats off yep. to his son, man. His son, uh, oh, I believe his son Collins. Yeah, Nick. I would say, I would say that Nick Collins is the equal of his father as a drummer, age twenty. What's he going to do in the future? It'd be very interesting to see. Yeah, God, God bless him, man. He's going out there and he's. He's not missing a beat. To be little, he is. Yeah, he's he's picking up where his dad left off. Man, it's it's. Yeah, cool. they they're due to play a series of dates across the U.S. and Canada in about four or five weeks. I think that kicks off. Uh, they've had to cancel uh, some of the dates in U.K. Unfortunately, I saw the last but one. They went to play Glasgow a few days after Liverpool, uh, and the rest of the dates in Glasgow and London have all been cancelled. Unfortunately, they were due to take place around about the time we're we're talking in the next few days, uh, but absolutely amazing. I don't want to spoil this for anybody who might be going to the Genesis concerts later in the year, but they played unexpectedly my all-time favorite Genesis song, uh, a track called Duchess from the album Duke. And it was beautiful. They've, they've changed the arrangement. They've dropped the key down so that Collins can sing it properly. Uh, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And they, they got a standing ovation after I Know What I Like in my wardrobe. You are working on a Phil book, aren't you? Yeah, it's finished. I finished it this week. That's right. So um, my next but one book will be Phil Collins in the 80s. So the Genesis albums, the solo albums, the session work that Collins did in the 80s and why he was so famous so quickly uh, and so massively in the 80s. Uh, that's due in the middle of um, next year. But yeah, once I saw the Genesis concert this week, I was able to finish the last little bit of the chapter. Can't wait. Yeah, we can talk a lot about them. Uh, next year, if you wish. Absolutely. My next book is uh, my next book is due before Christmas, and it's called James Bond on Screen, and it's a resume of all twenty-seven James Bond films. Oh, so, uh, okay. Again, that's finished now that I've seen the new film a few times as well. Oh, you saw the new one already? I'm going to see it tonight. Yeah, yeah. No, no spoilers. Okay. Take your take your tissues. Thumbs up. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Cool. I'm going to see it. I heard it's almost three hours. Two forty-three, but that was fine. If if Daniel Craig isn't at least awarded a BAFTA or an Oscar nomination, then there's no justice in the world. 
Andrew, thanks a lot, man. I know you're very busy, so I appreciate you spending some time talking about the book. Always, and- always good to talk, Eric. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. You have a great depth and, of, of knowledge of, of a great um, range of music, and it's always a pleasure to talk uh, trivia and music history with you. Thanks to Andrew Wilde for taking us through his book, Eric Clapton Solo, every album, every song. If you have a local independent bookstore, pick up a copy there and support not just Andrew, but your local independent bookstore a link to find your nearest bookstore on our show notes page. Make sure you subscribe to Booked on Rock at Spreaker or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We're on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, TuneIn, YouTube, and many more. Find us online at bookedonrock.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash bookedonrockpodcast. On Twitter at bookedonrock. The email address is thebookedonrockpodcast at gmail.com can also contact me through the website and if you're an author of a book on rock and you want to be on the podcast just send me an email i'm eric sanich thanks so much for listening and join me again next time for another brand new episode of booked on rock as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.